Well, good morning. As a preacher, I can't begin anything without um, saying a word of scripture. So this is from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, beginning in the fourth chapter. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome to this, what I am assured is the most prestigious breakout. I asked several times and was assured this is the most prestigious breakout session of the 11th Mockingbird New York City Conference. Uh, my name is Nick Lannon. I am Associate Rector at St. Francis in the Fields Episcopal Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I think I have had the pleasure of attending every single one of these 11 Mockingbird conferences, and it's been an honor to have been asked to share something, and I think all of them. Uh, this particular talk is born out of a couple of good conversations I've had recently, and I should say from the beginning that the ideas that I'll um, work out with you this morning have been worked out in conversation with some friends of mine. Um, the Reverend J.D. Koch happens to be sitting right here, uh, Tullian Trevigian, and my friend John O'Linebaugh. I will probably accidentally quote them without attribution on many occasions, but as I've often said, what's a little potential plagiarism among friends? <laughs> so I've had several good conversations lately, and they've all basically started like this. Yes. I understand that Jesus has given me his righteousness for free and that I'm saved by grace. But shouldn't I still try to do good things? Don't I have to respond? Shouldn't I be trying to grow? And I'm sure that almost everyone sitting in this room has gotten similar questions. They are the natural byproduct of a dogged refusal to preach anything but the good news of God and Christ. And for years, I would sort of ignore questions like this. Do you have to respond? Shouldn't I be trying to grow? No. No response, no growth. Simple as that. It was almost a point of pride, this refusal to talk about response or growth or sanctification. I remember years ago, at one of the very first Mockingbird conferences, someone had T-shirts printed up that said, weak on sanctification, and we all thought that they were awesome. <laughs> and there is a sense in which the accusation is a badge of honor, right? If someone accuses you of being weak on sanctification, you know you're doing a good job of preaching the finished work of Jesus Christ for sinners. But here's the thing. It's not true. We're not weak on sanctification. We don't reject the concept of Christian growth. In fact, we believe wholeheartedly in Paul's words to the Ephesians, attaining to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the 
measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Yes. It's just that gospel Christianity teaches that the mechanism by which this happens is exactly the opposite kind of mechanism than that by which the world, and unfortunately much of the church, expects it to happen. Hence the title of this presentation, Not Weak on Sanctification, Christians Grow in Reverse. So let me orient us here for just a second, and then we're going to dive in. I'm going to try to do two things this morning. First, I'm going to talk about the direction of Christian maturity, Christian growth, and then I'm going to talk about the good news. In other words, how Christian maturity actually comes about. But before we begin, let us pray. Dear God, we ask you to join us in this place this morning, and we trust that you are a promise-keeping God and that you are here. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, here is a true but counterintuitive statement about sanctification. I became a more mature Christian in the parking lot of my dentist's office when I locked my keys in my car. Now, perhaps you're thinking that that's not the kind of situation that would spur you on to Christian maturity, but that's just because you're not the kind of spiritual person that I am. (laughs) You see, I realized as soon as the door shut what I had done. So I'm walking into the dentist. So I have to sit there while they're scraping away at my teeth, thinking about what I've done and how I'm going to fix it. Luckily, we have roadside assistance through our car insurance, and I was able to call and get someone dispatched to help me. It's actually a pretty slick system. They use my cell phone to like locate me globally, and they, dis- they sent a text with an ETA only 30 minutes away. So everything was going to be just fine. Then, of course, the ETA came and went. Two phone calls to the roadside assistance provider came and went. Three phone calls to the actual guy in the truck trying to find me came and went. And finally, it's two and a half hours later. The dentist is now closed, so I'm waiting outside in the cold. I'm going to miss picking my kids up from school, and I'm frothing at the mouth. I'm so angry. The guy can't find me. I'm on the phone with him, and he can't find me. Even though I'm in the parking lot of a business, imminently findable even on Apple Maps. (laughs) And they allegedly have used my cell phone to triangulate my exact global position. The names that I called that driver, the roadside assistance provider, and my insurance down deep in the recesses of my heart were nothing short of despicable. It was a level of hate that surprised me, frankly. (laughs) And when the guy finally came to get me, when he finally did arrive, I had to say as few words to him as possible for fear of what might actually come out of my mouth. And finally, with this harrowing experience behind me, I got the kids late, got home and waited impatiently for my wife to get there so that I could complain to her about how I'd had to deal with such inconsiderate idiots all day. (laughs) Impressive, right? Can't you just feel my new maturity radiating off me when you hear that story? But I'm actually not being sarcastic. I honestly do think that I grew as a Christian because of that experience. And I have a great 
illustration uh, to help me. It's an illustration that Jesus uses in Luke chapter 18. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Now to say that that story is familiar is an understatement, right? You've probably heard that story a hundred times, and you've heard stories that make that point a thousand times. I probably didn't even get beyond two men went up to a temple to pray before you started zoning out. Like, yeah, I get it, all right? The Pharisee is a self-righteous jerk, and the tax collector has a healthy awareness of his sin and of his need for a savior. Don't be the Pharisee. Be the tax collector. But take a minute. Look a little closer. Is the Pharisee a self-righteous jerk? What does he actually say? God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. He's not actually that much of a self-righteous jerk. He just thinks he's a mature spiritual person. He even thanks God for his spiritual maturity. And he doesn't seem to want to take much credit for himself. He sees the good gifts that God has given him, and he says, thank you. Surely that's not so bad, is it? The problem is that the Pharisee has spiritual maturity completely backward. He's not wrong that spiritual maturity happens but he's got the process reversed. The Pharisee's conception of spiritual maturity, and most other people's too, he's conceiving of the path of Christian growth like the path up Mount Kilimanjaro. And it's a long, hard walk, but anyone who sets their minds to it, trains properly, and has the right equipment can do it. It's not Everest. Even you can climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Maybe we Christians don't need to lift weights or eat properly or get the right hiking boots, but we have our spiritual equivalents, don't we? We need to spend devotional time with God, perhaps in prayer or or fasting. We need to read God's word and scripture, and we need to give of our financial resources to aid the ministry of the church. A mature Christian sounds a lot like that Pharisee, doesn't it? but we're not going to make the same mistake the Pharisee made, are we? No, no, no. We're too smart for that. We've heard that story before. Don't be like the Pharisee. But do you see what we've just done? We just put ourselves two pews over from the Pharisee, right? He's looking over at and judging the tax collector, so he doesn't see us looking over at and judging him. God, we might say, I thank you that I am not like other people fundamentalists, my mother-in-law, or even this Pharisee. I keep my ever-growing spiritual maturity to myself. 
This then cannot be what spiritual maturity or Christian growth is actually about. And in truth, Christian growth isn't like climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. It's more like a spelunking expedition, descending into Mammoth Cave, shining a light into all the nooks and crannies that are full of spiders and gross worms with no eyes and horrifying insects. Jesus enters these caverns of our hearts and shines his light into all the corners of sin that we don't even want to acknowledge to ourselves. The lusts, the pride, the everything that we hide away from everyone. We say things like, stay out, keep away. And Jesus says, I have come to redeem even that. It comforts us, I think, to think of our relationship to Jesus as though we're a home he's thinking of buying. We know we're not perfect, so we like to think of ourselves as a unique fixer-upper opportunity. We'd prefer a visit from Chip and Joanna Gaines to the resurrection from the dead. You know, there's some damage behind the drywall. The kitchen could use some updated appliances, maybe another coat of paint or two in a couple of the bedrooms. Nothing too serious. In fact, this could be our refrain to Jesus. Nothing too serious. We don't think of Jesus as needing to do more serious work. He can do the touch-ups, improving the wonderful people that we already are. Our refrain of nothing too serious goes well with the non-biblical song, God helps those who help themselves. We'll take care of our foundations, thank you very much. Not that they need much work, because we don't really think much work is necessary. We don't think that our situation is that dire. When St. Paul writes about the human condition in Romans 3, we don't think that there's any way in the world it could apply to us. What shall we conclude then, says Paul? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin as it is written. And here Paul goes completely off the rails. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Incredibly... He's talking about you. He's talking about me. This is devastating. It's crushing to be told that your beautiful house is so terribly beset by structural problems that it's going to have to be torn down and completely rebuilt. We just want a little contact with Jesus. We think that he'll be able to take the good stuff we've got going on and capitalize it. We're not perfect, we'll admit that. But foundationally, we must be okay there, right? After all, we're not like that Pharisee. Jesus' answer is simply, 
No. He only does complete gut jobs. He refuses to do anything less than tear things down beyond the foundation and build something completely new. He said that anyone who wanted to be his disciple needed to take up his cross and follow him. Carrying crosses isn't so common now, but back when people did carry crosses, back in Jesus' day, there was only one way that that walk ended. You didn't put your cross down. You ended up on it. Jesus is saying that to be his disciple, you're going to die. Chip and Joanna Gaines aren't going to be enough. It's got to be death and resurrection. And we, who think we've only got sort of cute, superficial problems, who think that God helps those who help themselves, we say, whoa, 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 whoa. I only came here for a little help. Like uh, Monty Python's Black Knight, we insist that it's just a flesh wound. (laughs) I'm a unique fixer-upper opportunity, we protest. Not a total gut job, nothing too serious. But Jesus only starts new construction projects when there's a smoking crater where the old house used to be. Spiritual maturity isn't about getting better and better and seeing fewer and fewer people around you in the pews who can measure up to the standard you're setting. No, real spiritual maturity is about the light of Christ shining into ever deeper and darker, unexplored corners of your sinful heart. Christian growth comes from being reminded once again, even in a dentist's office parking lot, just how much and how desperately you need Jesus. The true shape of Christian growth is captured perfectly by Robert Lowry's classic hymn, I Need Thee Every Hour. He writes, I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee every hour in joy or pain. Come quickly and abide. Or life is in vain. I need thee. Oh, I need thee every hour. I need thee. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. I need thee every hour. Growth in Christ, advancing spiritual maturity, sanctification means an ever-growing acknowledgement of how much we need Jesus every hour, every moment. But even this is not the real climax of the story. It's all well and good for that tax collector and for us to acknowledge our crippling need to refuse even to look up to heaven. But that can't be the end. Shouting, we're not worthy, is not good news. We don't stop there. And praise God, we never stop there. We worship a God whose property is always to have mercy on the unworthy. And this is why the tax collector goes home justified. Not because he's so adept at beating himself up, but because the Lord answers his tortured cry. He says, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God in Christ says, I will have mercy on you. When the thief used his last breaths to ask Jesus to remember him, When he came into his kingdom, Jesus didn't hesitate. Today, 
he promised, you will be with me in paradise. There are two ways in which your sin can surprise you. First, like me in the dentist's parking lot, you can be surprised at the darkness of it, the anger that you're capable of, the fact that your heart is more twisted than you ever thought it could be, the things you find yourself thinking that you just can't believe. Or you can be surprised to find yourself in the Pharisee's pew, looking around and thinking, thank goodness I'm not like these terrible sinners. Either way, the realization will wring a tortured cry from your throat. Oh my God, I had no idea. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And God, the Father of our Savior Jesus Christ, answers our cry. I am your peace. I am nearby. I have died for you. I have given you my pure heart in exchange for your twisted one. I have given you my goodness in exchange for your sin. You need me. I am here. I always will be. Every hour. Every moment. So, growth in Christ is more like progress down than progress up. This is actually not all that uncommon an idea. Uh, You've probably heard the phrase, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. The idea is a simple one. As you get smarter, you become more and more aware of how much more knowledge there is out there. In other words, the smarter you get, the lower on the knowledge ladder you can see yourself to be. And the same can be said of Christianity. The more mature in Christ you become, the more aware you are of your immaturity. Mother Teresa, years after she died, became a poster child for this idea when her own spiritual doubts and feelings of separation from God became public knowledge. This woman who had seemed to everyone to be such a paragon of faithfulness, of spiritual maturity, had in fact written in a letter to a friend that Jesus has a very special love for you As for me, she said, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see, listen and do not hear. These words are written mere months before she received the 1979 Nobel Peace Prize and shed light on a profound truth. The most mature Christians are not those whose moral character permits them to rely on Jesus less. No. Mature Christians are those who are so closely attuned to their sinfulness that they know exactly how much they need him. Christian growth, then, is not a progression upward from weakness to strength. True Christian growth is more properly to be thought of as a progression downward from assumed assumed strength to acknowledged weakness. Again, not a climb up a mountain, but a descent into a cave. As we grow as Christians, more and more things do not become possible for us. In fact, as we grow as Christians, we grow more and more aware of just how impossible everything is outside of Christ. (laughs) But impossible is a hard story for us to tell. It's a boring story. We don't actually like impossible, 
I said this before, even in Mission Impossible, the missions aren't actually impossible. <laughs> They're just unlikely, right? Ethan Hunt and the IMF always get it done in the end. We don't like impossible, we like unlikely. And our favorite stories are about unlikely heroes. Consider Han Solo. Han Solo has a sort of classic character arc, right? He starts out as this um, selfish guy in it only for himself. In the first Star Wars, he shoots Greedo to get out of paying a debt, and yes, Han shot first. <laughs> and yes, he agrees to take Luke and Obi-Wan to Alderaan, but only for the right price. And even after they end up on the Death Star and are rescuing Leia, he only agrees to help because he's promised riches beyond his imagining. But at the end of the movie, after seeming to leave like a selfish coward, he zips back into the fight, saving Luke and saving the day. It's a classic story, a classic character. And movies love stories like this because we all love stories like this. Growth stories. The rascal who learns to have a heart of gold. This is the kind of story arc we like best. We all want to be Han Solo. It's a redemptive arc, an improvement arc, a triumphant arc, from bad to good. Uh, from, to borrow a phrase from the classic vanilla ice film, cool as ice, <laughs> from zero to hero. But let's transition now from Han Solo and Vanilla Ice back to the Bible. The Bible is chock full of characters who seem to be engaged in the exact opposite character arc. Not from zero to hero, but from hero to zero. And the crown prince of these characters, of course, is the disciple Peter. One classic example of Peter's arc from hero to zero comes in Mark chapter 8. I'll just read a couple verses of it here again. You know it well. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah, son of of the living God. When Jesus asks the disciples about his identity, it's Peter who's the hero. He gets the gold star. He's got the right answer. You are the Messiah, son of the living God. And then Jesus tells Peter that this is the rock upon which his church will be built. And we know, theologically speaking, it's not actually Peter himself who is the rock, but his confession of Christ as the Messiah upon which the church is founded. But the illustration still stands. Peter's still the hero. He got the answer right. He's rewarded a gold star, a new name. It actually means rock. And this isn't the first time, nor will it be the last, that Peter is the hero. When Jesus comes walking on the water, it's Peter who has faith enough to jump out of the boat and take, albeit just a few, but a few steps toward him. When Jesus says at the Last Supper that one of his disciples will betray him, it's Peter who says, no way, Lord, not me. Even if I have to die, I will never betray you. This is a heroic thing to say. So it doesn't seem strange to us that Jesus 
verbally rewards Peter for his confession, praising his accuracy, his true identification, and giving him this new name. But immediately, even during this same name-changing ceremony, everything goes south for Peter. (laughs) Jesus begins to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed, and on the third day raised to life. And Peter, who was just the hero, and must have felt like he was on sort of a roll, tries to be heroic again, and begins to rebuke Jesus. He makes what must have felt like a heroic stand. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. I'll never let anyone kill you. But to Jesus, in this moment, Peter goes from hero to zero. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. This is how fast Peter's transition from hero to zero happens in a paragraph. In a breath, he gets the answer right. You are Christ, son of the living God, and becomes the hero. And in the next breath, when Jesus starts to talk about what the son of the living God must do, Peter, claiming to prevent Jesus' death, goes to zero real fast. Get behind me, Satan. Okay, so in the space of five sentences, Peter goes from upon this rock to get behind me, Satan. How does Jesus explain himself? What is his teaching in light of this precipitous slide, this fall from hero to zero? What does he have to say to Peter? What advice does Jesus have for his gathered followers? This is the place of all places where Jesus talks about carrying crosses. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves Take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Peter's mistake, and this is a super counterintuitive thing to say, Peter's mistake is in trying to save Jesus' life. And we make this same mistake too. We try every day, by living good lives, by trying to grow up into the full stature of Christ, to live lives that might save Jesus' life. That sounds weird, I know, but let me explain. We know we're not perfect, but I believe that we think that if we do well enough, maybe, just maybe, Jesus won't have had to die. For us, we'd like, like Peter, to keep Jesus off that cross if we could. Now, of course, for us, it happened in the past. So our only recourse is to try to become people who wouldn't have needed something so intense, so bloody, so dark. Thank you very much. Now, I know you'll say, no, I don't think that. I'm glad Jesus died for me. And of course, we are glad I'm with you. But down deep, underneath anything you'd probably even ever admit to yourself, 
Wouldn't you rather? Wouldn't it be nice if the Son of God hadn't had to die for you? Wouldn't it alleviate some of the pressure if you could say, well, I'm one less person he had to die for. One less weight laid on his shoulders. Or he didn't have to suffer quite so much for me. Or maybe simpler, that guy really needs Jesus. Have you ever caught yourself having a thought like that? Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector. Every day we try to do the honorable thing, the heroic thing. We try to save Jesus' life. <laughs> Living this way um, makes us like the kind of person who shouts things at the screen at a scary movie. Like, don't go in there. <laughs> we say, don't pick Judas to be your disciple at his trial. When, when Pilate questions you, defend yourself. When he's carrying the cross, don't walk up that hill. And finally, we say, you have the power. Command the angels, come down from the cross, please. Please. We're with Peter. We want to save Jesus' life. And subconsciously, down real deep, we think that our Christian growth might actually do it. And to that attitude, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Jesus' disciples thought that being his followers meant protecting him, keeping him safe, saving his life, and we have these same thoughts. We say things like, I would die for Jesus. But remember, Jesus says that if anyone to become my followers, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Make no mistake, followers of Jesus go to the cross with him. <clears throat> Hear me clearly. I'm not saying followers of Jesus need to go to the cross with him. I'm saying that followers of Jesus are on their way to the cross. It's not a commandment. It's happening. If we try to save him, if we try to avoid the cross, we lose ourselves. Remember what I said earlier about carrying crosses. We would end up on the crosses we carry. But that's the amazing thing, the gospel thing. When Jesus asks us to take up our crosses and follow him, he knows full well that not one of his disciples can bear that weight. Peter, the rock, denied his best friend, the one he called the Messiah, son of the living God, denied even knowing him. Three times, only a few hours after saying he would die for him. We're with Peter on that precipitous slide from hero to zero. We want to save Jesus' life. We might well say with Peter, Jesus, I'll die for you. But we've got the direction of that death all wrong. Our dying for Jesus isn't good news for anyone. It's all about Jesus. Our figurative Deaths traded for his 
physical death, our cross, his cross standing in for ours, our separation from God traded in for his closeness with God, our sin traded in for his righteousness. We are the zeros. He is the hero. We must decrease, says John, and he must increase. When we cry out, Jesus, I'll die for you. Jesus, who knows our sin, our weakness, our pain and our fear, says no. And he dies for us instead. So we've got this, right? Christian growth happens in reverse. It's not like climbing a mountain. It's like descending into a cave. It's not about being a hero. It's about realizing that you are a zero and Christ is the hero. But how does this work itself out? In the world. This is really the source of the questions I was talking about at the beginning. If a Christian is growing in reverse, does he or she bear fruit? How can we tell? How does that happen? How do we evince our growth? What about doing good things? In Matthew 25, Jesus tells this incredibly bracing parable. And much like the parable of the talents, which directly precedes it, in which the servant who buries his talent in the ground is cast into the outer darkness, it's really hard to read this one and not wince. And I'm going to read it to you, and you're going to wince. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another, As a shepherd separates sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. The king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison. And he visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? When was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Now we start to wince. Then he will say to those at his left hand, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In the same way that many of us, all of us, listen to the parable of the talents and have that thought, oh no, 
Am I the servant who buried his talent? Many of us hear, all of us hear this story and think, oh my God. Would Jesus say, I've done all those things? Would he say that I've done them enough? Now my hope is that all of you are right now thinking to yourself, I know exactly what this guy is going to say. I'm at Mockingbird after all. (laughs) He's going to say that this passage is designed to bring me up short, to make me realize just how short of the mark I'm falling, how infrequently I do these things. It's the law, the rules, the standard that's designed to force me to my knees and make me call out for a savior. And then he's going to say that he has good news, that a savior has come. Jesus lived the righteous life I never could, and then by his death and resurrection has given that righteousness to me. And yes, I'm going to say that. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. That's the gospel, and that is the final word of this passage. But this morning, to attempt to illustrate to you how Christian growth and fruit-bearing and sanctification actually happens, I want to say something else first. Because if anything is clearly seen in this parable, it's that we should all feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, care for the sick, visit the prisoner. We should do these things. I mean, look at the consequences. The people who don't do these things will, according to verse 46, go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous, the ones who do do them, into eternal life. And here we have the great rub of the Christian life, the problem of sanctification. How is it that sinful people, in other words, basically self-interested people like you and me, how do sinful people become people who feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, care for the sick, and visit the prisoner? How do we grow? How do we become? And as a preacher, the question takes on a little sharper point. What can I say to you that will help you become that kind of person? What can I say to you to help you grow? Well, the traditional way, perhaps the most obvious strategy, is for me to simply encourage you to be people who do these things. Do more, try harder, be better. I can do this either using fear of consequences, remember that fire, eternal punishment, or by using the promise of reward, reminding you that these are good things that we will be repaid by God with eternal life. But I know that you're Christians. So perhaps, because I know that you're Christians and that you know that your eternal life is secure in the work, the finished work of Christ... I could encourage you to do these things simply to please God and to serve your neighbor. But there's that catch. There's that pesky sin problem. How do we get sinners to do these things? The philosopher Blaise Pascal likened asking a sinner to be good to asking a man with two broken legs to run a marathon. Uh, Fitz Allison, former Episcopal Bishop of South Carolina, put it this way. Uh, A sergeant, he said, told a grim joke 
to his trainees during the Second World War, which shows the real flaw in this reward-punishment understanding of Christianity. A man stopped on a dirt road to help get another man's car out of a ditch. The latter was harnessing two small furry kittens to the bumper of his huge car when he was asked, Mr. You aren't going to try to get those kittens to pull that car out of the ditch, are you? His reply was, why not? I've got a whip. Usually people laugh when I say that. (laughs) You're very intense right now. It's fine. We want to be people who run the marathon. We want to get the car out of the ditch in the same way that we want Christians and all people to grow, to become people who feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, care for the sick, and visit the prisoner. The problem with exhortation is the capability of the one being exhorted. We are broken-legged people. We are small, furry kittens tied to the bumper of a huge car. In short, we're sinners, unable to do the good things we want to do. St. Paul describes the problem with exhortation like this. In Romans 7, he said, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment which promised life (coughs) proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it, killed me. Did you catch the counterintuitive nature of that? When Paul was told, do not covet, all kinds of covetousness arose in him. The exhortation that he thought would spur him on to good works, to growth, actually made things worse. And not just works worse, he said, in fact, it killed him. And by extension, we can imagine that he would say upon reading this parable of sheep and goats, when I was told to do all these things for my neighbor, all kinds of selfishness rose up in me. If the preacher says, love your neighbor in this way, all kinds of selfishness will rise up in the congregation. This is Paul's argument and the operation is the same. We've still got to somehow overcome the sin problem. And encouragement and exhortation don't seem to be the way to do it. In fact, the witness of Scripture and yours and my real life is that encouragement and exhortation make things worse. They don't bring growth. They bring death. So what are we to do? We still want that car out of the ditch. I still want you to feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, welcome the stranger, and so on. We still want, as broken-legged people, to run the marathon. 
We still want to grow as Christians. But how can we accomplish it? Recently, my boss and longtime Mockingbird contributor J.D. Koch, sitting right here, I hate to flatter him like this, <laughs> used a great illustration. He talked about the gospel, the good news, the finished work of God and Christ for sinners. He said that the gospel is like a heat laser aimed at our ice ball of a heart. Okay? A heat laser aimed at our ice ball of a heart. Our icy hearts, even as Christians, are the equivalent of Pascal's broken legs or Fitz Allison's small furry kittens tied to a huge car. Our hearts, profoundly turned in upon themselves as they are, are the reason that exhortation and encouragement aren't enough. Our hearts are frozen. And no matter what Elsa and Anna say, it is only the gospel that can melt a frozen heart. It is only the gospel that can melt a frozen heart. What actually happens is that when you hear the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came to live, to die, and be raised again for you, outside anything that you did, are doing, or will ever do, the ice ball in your heart melts, and that now boiling water starts flowing out of you in every direction. When you hear that all the affirmation, all the value, all the identity, and all the love you could ever need has been given to you for free on account of Christ, you are free to stop seeking those things from other people. And do you know what? You begin to serve them. The hungry get fed. The thirsty are given drink. The stranger is welcomed. The naked are clothed. The sick are cared for. The prisoners are visited. All this holiness comes as a direct result of hearing the gospel. Because it is the gospel that melts a frozen heart, turning that ice into a boiling river of love. And that's the great secret of Christian growth. It's not a secret in that you're not allowed to know it. We want everyone to know it. It's a secret because it's the complete opposite of what everyone expects. And here's how it works. Holiness does not come by exhortation, but by grace. Holiness does not come by exhortation, by demanding holiness. Holiness comes by grace. So how do we encourage growth? How do we spur on sanctification? Listen, if holiness comes by grace, we should spend all our time talking Not about holiness, but about grace. We talk exclusively, exhaustively, unendingly about grace. To melt your frozen hearts all the more. To release even more boiling water into the world. To actually be the kinds of people that God is calling us to be. We talk 
about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So let's talk about grace. Don't we have to do good things? Don't we have to respond? Well, the news is better than that. On account of grace, you will do good things. You will respond. Don't we have to grow? Shouldn't we be sanctified? The news is better than that. On account of grace, you will grow. You will be sanctified. On this trip of the Christian life, the Holy Spirit is our driver. We're in good hands. He will make sure God's purposes are accomplished. Christian growth is complete reliance on God's promises in Isaiah 55. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it blood and flourish, making it grow so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. The Holy Spirit is our driver and grace is the fuel that makes the car go. Therefore, we don't talk about what the trip will look like or even what the destination will be. We just keep pouring gas in the tank. This is how we encourage Christian growth. We preach the gospel again and again and again and again. The author of Hebrews reminds us that we're not in charge of this trip of faith in the 12th chapter of his letter when he calls Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus gives us faith and Jesus makes it grow. Jesus tends our faith and harvests it. He is the author and perfecter. We are passengers. It is God in Christ who sanctifies. It is God whose gospel, the loving sacrifice of his own son, melts that ball of ice in our hearts and begins and brings to completion his sanctifying work in us. He is the potter. We are the clay. Thank God. At the end of his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul gives what seem like impossible exhortations to grow. He says, we appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Just be at peace. We urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them, see that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, ah, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise the words of the prophets, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Just do that. <laughs> Paul, though, knows how Christian growth, maturity and sanctification actually happens. He knows that Christians grow in reverse. And so he doesn't leave the Thessalonians there. 
with two broken legs and a marathon in front of them. He doesn't leave them there, small kittens tied to the bumper of a huge car. And he doesn't leave us there either. Paul finishes as I'm going to finish this morning. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do this. There is bad news. Our legs are broken. We are small, furry kittens tied to the bumper of a huge car. We are not fixer-uppers. We are total gut jobs. We are not heroes, but zeros. We are continually shocked by the depth and persistence of our sin. Our hearts are frozen. But I have good news. A Savior has come. Jesus lived the righteous life that you never could. And then by his death and resurrection has given that righteousness to you. It is finished. He turns, looks at you, yes, even you, and says, Today you will be with me in paradise. And he means it. Because every day, even today, this heat laser of the gospel is aimed dead-eyed at the ice ball of your heart. And that ice is turned into a boiling river of love. And you grow. The one who calls you is faithful. And he is doing this. Amen. Amen.